Imagine your closest friend dies unexpectedly, leaves an incredible legacy. Well, potentially incredible and glorious, but it's a precarious one still. And he leaves an infant son. You've built this legacy together with him. His story is your story. And that tiny child is so helpless. But imagine the legal custodian of your friend's legacy and the baby boy the man who's actually going to be making all the decisions is incompetent at best, and you start to think that he's also more interested in boosting his own status than honoring this patrimony he's charged with defending. It's not hard to imagine, is it? Sometimes the one who cares the most about a legacy of a friend is not the one who gets put in charge of protecting it. So how far does your duty extend to that custodian? or to your friend's legacy for that matter. How much of yourself do you give to protect it? Your life? These kind of questions get even more complicated if that friend of yours was Alexander the Great, and his family has become a golden game piece in a huge power struggle over a dozen precariously united kingdoms. I'm Alex Petkus, and you are listening to The Cost of Glory, where it is our mission to retell the biographies of Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen ourselves for the present. We use Plutarch as our guide. This is part two of three of the life of Eumenes of Cardia. When we last left Eumenes, he just got a big promotion. It was a reward for the fact that Eumenes had been the crucial mediator between two factions that were on the brink of a violent conflict in Babylon after Alexander's death. The soldiery and the leaders were at odds, and a riot had broken out over the question of who should rule the empire and in whose name. Eumenes helped to broker a truce between the two sides, and they eventually ended up coming to an agreement. It was called the Partition of Babylon. And the man who ended up in charge of the empire the greatest land empire ever assembled in the West up to that point, because it included Greece and Macedonia, as well as the old Persian territories, as well as some large chunks of India, northern India, and all of these regions, by the way, speaking different languages, having different cultural traditions and religions. The guy nominally in charge of it all was Perdiccas. Perdiccas wasn't king, but regent. That is, protector of the kings, protector of Alexander's infant son, Alexander IV, and Alexander's unfit-for-rule half-brother, Aridaeus, who was actually renamed Philip III after his father, Philip II. So Aridaeus becomes Philip III. It was sort of a mess. Why had Alexander not chosen a successor? He had continued functioning as his health gradually worsened over the course of some ten days, Surely he was able to foresee the possibility well ahead of time. Was it because he was so convinced of his own invincibility that making provisions for the worst-case scenario seemed like throwing away his greatest advantage against the disease, his willpower? Had he not continued to win his battles in the past precisely because he was so fanatically convinced that he could not lose? Or if he realized he was dying... Did he somehow believe that his friends were better equipped to solve the succession problem without his interference? Well, 
Eumenes' story is the story of how one man who loved him dearly, as far as we can tell, did his best to secure his dead friend's legacy. Because Alexander's achievement was not just the king's personal achievement, it was their collective legacy. Well, when we left off last episode, Perdiccas rewarded Eumenes for his honorable performance in Babylon by giving him a large province, or satrapy, to govern. Eumenes probably hoped he could help his own hometown of Cardia out by getting rid of a local tyrant that had taken over it once he established himself. But first, he had bigger problems. The greater part of his satrapy, a region called Cappadocia, was held by an old Persian governor or satrap who refused to concede to the new Macedonian regime. These territories had actually never been controlled or pacified by the Macedonians after Alexander's conquest. So that's where we were. Now, Perdiccas didn't send Eumenes totally empty-handed and without help. He had a modest force of mercenaries and Asian soldiers at his command, and he had some money to raise new troops. He was also accompanied by another satrap headed to a nearby province, a guy named Leonatus, with his forces. More on Leonatus in a moment. But Perdiccas also summoned in a nearby Macedonian satrap to help Eumenes and Leonatus out. Perdiccas called in as reinforcement the one-eyed satrap of Phrygia. The man's name was Antigonus, a leathery old companion and general of Philip II that had served honorably under Philip's son. And once Alexander had crossed into Asia, he left Antigonus behind in Phrygia in Western Asia Minor to keep the peace as he led the rest of the Macedonians on to conquest in Persia and India. Not to be confused with Antipater, who was still running affairs in Macedonia. And Antigonus's satrapy, Phrygia, was in Asia Minor, again, and this is one province over to the west from Cappadocia, which was Eumenes' goal. Antigonus, the one-eyed, had a strong power base, a large army, and a military infrastructure that he had been building up and training for more than 10 years. Antigonus had been a friend of Eumenes, well, at least he had acted like a friend in the past, but Antigonus, after being summoned, completely ignored Perdiccas. This was unsettling, and he didn't offer any excuse. What was going on? Weren't they friends? Or was it that the Macedonian Antigonus was happy to have a Greek friend as a subordinate, but not as a peer or as a rival satrap in Asia? Or was this somehow about Perdiccas? That was perhaps a more disturbing possibility. But Eumenes still had Leonatus, at least. Leonatus was one of the so-called bodyguards of Alexander, his highest commanders and his closest companions. He was another proud young Macedonian noble. He grew up with Alexander. But once they reached the edge of Eumenes' province and they were preparing to start their recruiting campaign, preparing for their invasion against this rogue Persian satrap, Leonatus caught another offer. Dashing young Leonatus had bigger ambitions than being some backwater satrap, and it seemed like many people knew it. Crafty old Antipater, the man still in charge of Macedonia, was offering big rewards if Leonatus would come help him put down a major uprising in Greece. The cities that Philip had once subdued were actually now trying to throw off the Macedonian yoke now that Alexander was dead. Antipater was, you may recall, Eumenes' longtime nemesis, they had never gotten along when Eumenes was serving under Philip. 
and Antipater had stayed back as regent of Macedonia when Alexander went on his great Asian campaign. And they continued to be, Antipater and Eumenes, on opposite sides of Olympias, Alexander's mother, who was there in the area in Macedonia too. Eumenes was still her friend and confidant via letters, and Antipater was always resenting her meddling in political affairs. And now Antipater, and surely he was fully aware of Leonidas' pre-existing commitment to help Eumenes, he had to be, well, Antipater was now trying to lure Leonidas away to serve his own agenda. And the man Antipater had sent to deliver this message was none other than Hecateus, the reigning tyrant of Cardia. Leonidas started trying to reason with Eumenes. Brother, I know you have your differences with Hecateus and Antipater, but Antipater knows that he could use a man like you. How about you join me, and I can reconcile you with Hecateus as well. You're worth ten Hecateuses. Antipater knows it. Eumenes responds to Leonidas. How about... I join you guys, and Antipater, who has long hated me, finally has me murdered like he always wanted to, and then he gets to tell Hecateus he was doing him a big favor. How does that sound? Because that's how I see this shaking out. Leonidas conceded, Okay, okay, I see your point. Brother, can you keep a secret? Eumenes did, after all, have an uncanny reputation for keeping secrets. And so Leonidas confided to him, he didn't care a whiff about old man Antipater, actually. It turned out Alexander's sister, Cleopatra, was sending Leonidas secret letters, offering him her hand in marriage. She wants Leonidas to seize the throne of Macedonia, and implicitly the entire kingdom. As daughter of Philip of Macedon and Olympias, as Alexander's full sister, her children and her husband would have about as strong a claim on the throne as anyone. So Leonidas wants to make a play at the supreme kingship. And he wants Eumenes to be his point man in the new regime. The two of them together, they could easily sort out Antipater and Hecateus. Eumenes could get rid of this tyrant. He'd be the hometown hero in Cardia. They could sort it all out. Easy. Eumenes retired to think on the matter. The thought of ousting Antipater and putting someone more competent than Perdiccas on the throne had its appeal. But Eumenes had always done his best to be the king's loyal servant. And joining Leonidas didn't seem honorable at all, especially after all the hard work the companions had done hammering out that partition of Babylon. Leonidas was likable, but he was an impulsive, distracted man. Not obviously a better choice than Perdiccas, even if he were married to the most legitimate royal alive, Alexander's only full sibling. This conquest and the success of the past decade had robbed Leonidas of his sense of proportion, Leonidas liked to wrestle, and the Greek custom was to do that on a floor covered with fine dust. And Eumenes could recall how, after they had defeated the Persian king, Leonidas had a huge load of very fine specialty dust imported to Persia from Egypt on dozens of camels for his personal training floor. He was charming, but he was hardly promising as a ruler of this vast kingdom. And Leonidas was underestimating Antipater and Hecateus both. Cleopatra too, for that matter. What was especially disturbing was that nobody seemed to be taking Perdiccas very seriously. Antipater, Antigonus, Leonidas, even Cleopatra, they all seemed to be pursuing their own agendas. And all this at a time when there was so much at stake. 
Was there any hope of holding this empire together if people couldn't respect agreed-upon authority? Eumenes decided he was going to be the one to honor his commitments. So in the middle of the night, he quietly took his soldiers and the treasure chests and marched away back to Perdiccas. He was long gone before Leonidas even woke up, and he explained the whole situation to Perdiccas, and Perdiccas trusted him even more now and made him one of his chief advisors. Leonidas ended up going to Greece and dying shortly thereafter in a battle. Sometimes you want something done, you got to do it yourself. So Perdiccas decides to march personally to Eumenes' province with his whole army. And together, they defeat the rebel Iranian governor, Ariarathes, this intimate friend of King Darius, who had fought alongside the late Persian king at Gogamela, the final battle. And it wasn't easy to defeat Ariarathes. It took two hard-fought battles. He was a worthy foe, fighting on like this when it all seemed hopeless giving his life to defend the honor of his friend, the king, who had been dead for nearly 10 years, never giving up. And looking back on Ariarathes in retrospect, considering the path Eumenes ended up taking in life, you wonder if he saw something of himself in the qualities of this tragic man. After capturing him, Perdiccas had Ariarathes crucified. After fighting alongside Perdiccas to reclaim these territories for the throne of Alexander, Eumenes was finally installed as satrap of Cappadocia and Paphlagonia, which was the northern coast. And this was, by the way, the first time Cappadocia, the central and eastern interior regions of Asia Minor, later home of famous Greek church fathers like Basil and Gregory, it went on to become a Byzantine heartland, this is the first time that this area was brought under control of Greek-speaking peoples. Now, Eumenes had convinced Perdiccas that he would be more useful to the regent if he stayed close by the throne, and so a local administrator was appointed for his satrapy to serve in Cappadocia in Eumenes' stead. In other words, Eumenes delegated his local duties as satrap, though he kept the title in the office and ultimate control of the province's income as though it were a sort of peerage, maybe. But Eumenes himself joined Perdiccas at the royal court. He was moving into the position of royal advisor, and he was starting to look like Perdiccas's second-in-command. Meanwhile, Perdiccas had moved the court and the two kings who were under his protection west from Babylon to Cilicia, which was the territory neighboring Cappadocia immediately to the south. It's a coastal region, Cilicia. And it's worth noting here that the Cilicians also did not really begin to speak Greek until this period, beginning in this period at least, until Alexander's conquest. And 350 years later, a Greek-speaking Jewish man named Saul would be born in one of the great Cilician cities in Tarsus. And he would go on to become, of course, the Christian apostle Paul and write much of the New Testament. So that's Cilicia. So for Perdiccas here, moving to Cilicia allowed him to keep a closer eye on what was going on in Western Asia Minor and Macedonia with Antigonus and Antipater, because trust was eroding, and not just with those guys. For example, at the partition of Babylon, the guy who got Egypt was named Ptolemy. Perdiccas had given Ptolemy civil control of the province as satrap. But then he assigned for Egypt a separate military satrap, 
and the two Egyptian governors were supposed to sort of keep each other in check. Well, shortly after getting to Egypt, Ptolemy had his military assistant assassinated. And with that man out of the way, Ptolemy simply took full power of all functions in that very wealthy satrapy. Ptolemy must have recognized that this was a serious challenge to Perdiccas's authority, a challenge to the legitimacy of the kings, too, that Perdiccas stood for. What on earth was going on? Well, Eumenes tried to focus on performing his own duties well. But as happens almost invariably for competent outsiders, Eumenes became an object of envy and resentment because of his successes. For example, shortly after Eumenes joined him at court, Perdiccas had dispatched another Macedonian, prominent Macedonian commander to Armenia in the province which neighbored Cappadocia to the east. There was some mopping up of resistance and rebellion there to do after the war with the satrap Ariarathes. And the guy he sent to take care of the job was a man named Neoptolemus. But Neoptolemus was struggling to get his Macedonian infantry troops to fight willingly. These men had come from villages in the misty valleys of northern Greece. Many of them had been living in mud huts. They had slept under the stars beside their goats as little boys. Their greatest ambitions had been to run cattle raids on the next town over. And then Philip II had called them down to the plains and made them warriors, masters of Greece. Alexander, who had fought with them in battle when he was a teenager, Alexander had made them masters of Asia, of Persia. They had defeated great kings with their spears. They had all become greater than anything they could have imagined. Some had amassed fortunes. Some had spent fortunes. And the greatest wonder was that the gods somehow kept them alive through all of those battles, through the harsh winters, the burning heat, the plagues. But they hadn't seen their homelands for nearly 15 years. And now they were about to embark on a campaign to root out guerrilla insurgents in the barren mountains and steppe valleys of western Armenia. Was this strange and forbidding land worth dying for? Worth them dying for? They missed Alexander, their beloved king, the grand vision of uniting East and West. But they were starting to lose faith, pushing the borders of this huge kingdom just a little further at the expense of their lives. After all they'd been through, was it not just serving a lesser man's greed? They just wanted to settle down and enjoy the riches they had acquired. Many of them had started families on the road. So, it was a serious leadership problem to motivate these men, and Neoptolemus was apparently not up to the challenge. And Perdiccas sends in Eumenes to help him out. In other words, to take over and employ Neoptolemus as a subordinate. Eumenes comes in and performs brilliantly. He raises volunteer horsemen from the surrounding areas, offers them tax breaks to incentivize them. He buys horses and distributes them among trusted officers. And in a very short time, he puts together a huge cavalry of 6,300 horsemen. The Macedonian infantry troops who had been dragging their feet under Neoptolemus, they see Eumenes' energy and his devotion to the cause. And he riles them up with some tough words, fires them up for war, and he's able to lead these tired Macedonians on with him to finish the job in Armenia. Now, what Neoptolemus lacked in leadership abilities or strategic judgment, he made up for in pure toughness. 
At Alexander's famous siege of Gaza, that was the strongest fortress on the Levantine coast, Neoptolemus had been the first to scale the walls. He fought the defenders on the walls all alone until more soldiers joined him. He was a hell of a fighter. And he did not like being upstaged by this Greek from nowhere. He starts scoffing behind Eumenes's back. I followed Alexander with a shield and a spear. Eumenes followed him with a pen and paper. So, Eumenes had made himself a new personal enemy among the lieutenants of Perdiccas. These were the sort of tensions in his ranks that Alexander could hold at bay, partly through pure force of personality and partly because there was a vision. At times, it even seemed like a divine mission that kept everyone united, mostly. But Perdiccas wasn't very good at smoothing things out. He didn't resolve people's disputes well. He didn't even resolve his own disputes very well. Again, Perdiccas was a Macedonian nobleman around the same age as Eumenes. He was very competent and intelligent, but he didn't have Alexander's charisma. Alexander was funny, handsome, brave, lucky, and just magnetic. He convinced some people that he was the son of Zeus, and with a track record like he had, who knows, right? But Perdiccas didn't seem to have that sense of a trajectory. He was cold-blooded. He commanded a lot of deference in person, but he was more frightening than awe-inspiring. He'd had a few people, important people, murdered since Alexander's death, including another of Alexander's wives, a Persian noblewoman who was pregnant with another potential heir. It seemed so cruel. Perdiccas didn't inspire love or loyalty in many of the Macedonians. People would often agree to his commands in front of him to avoid getting maybe bullied or maybe worse, and then they'd go back on their word when they got out of range. And, you know, it's hard to pinpoint when exactly the first great war of the successors officially started. And in this atmosphere of mutual suspicion, it's hard to place all the blame on any one party. And maybe it was fated. There's a legend that Alexander in his last moments prophesied it all. His friends were asking, pleading, Alexander! Who will you leave your kingdom to? And he said, To the strongest man. And I foresee that a great combat of my friends will be my funeral games. Most historians doubt that that happened, but considering the outcome, which seemed so inevitable in retrospect, leaving the succession undecided when he died, maybe it was hard not to imagine him saying something tragic like that, somehow knowing Either way, here's how it happened. Here's how it all broke out. Antipater, the regent in Macedonia, he was trying to shore up relations with Perdiccas by offering him his daughter, Nicaea, in marriage. So he sends her to Perdiccas, along with many gifts. But Alexander's mother, Olympias, finds out about it. She urges her daughter, Cleopatra, Alexander's only full sister, again, to go to Perdiccas and offer herself in marriage to the man. Cleopatra was still available, especially now after Leonidas died. By the way, this is not the famous Cleopatra of Egypt that you've heard of. She was much later, that one. This is a common Macedonian name. Now, one of the things that Eumenes had learned long ago was that in a monarchy, family dynamics have huge geopolitical implications. There's just no getting around it. 
So Eumenes was strongly backing Cleopatra's bid to marry Perdiccas. Because regardless of who Perdiccas married, he would be tempted to install his future son as the new king instead of Alexander's baby. So if Perdiccas and Antipater, the two most powerful men standing, if they made a marriage alliance between each other, that would pose a major threat to the Argaead royal house, to Philip and Alexander's royal line. So better that Perdiccas's baby be Cleopatra's baby too, and so it would be Alexander the Great's nephew or niece. This was something that Olympias clearly picked up on as well, and Eumenes was loyal to her and to Philip's legacy, but this issue of the royal line wasn't just about who gets to rule. It was a question of the stability and integrity of the kingdom, because the Macedonian rank and file in the army were all staunch monarchists too, and loyal above all to the family of Alexander. There were temples being built already across the kingdom to honor Alexander and Philip as demigods. Alexander had been embalmed and mummified by Egyptian priests and placed in a sarcophagus like a pharaoh. He was the pharaoh. The throne, with all of its symbolic implications, it wasn't just some office that could be filled by the agreement of a few magnates. It wasn't something that could be reserved as an inheritance for a different family. Perdiccas and Antipater, of course, deny that they had any such intentions, but Olympias and Eumenes could see past this. It was just human nature. And there was another rather immediate political point to this, too. If it started looking like some other Macedonian noble was going to take power over the kingdom instead of a blood relation of Alexander, or at least someone married to a blood relation, the throne would start to lose its divine charisma. The army's loyalty would be compromised, they would likely become fickle, and why wouldn't the Macedonians in that case be open to following Craterus or Ptolemy or Antigonus or any one of the many talented satraps? And he who controls the army controls the kingdom. Thus, Eumenes' advice, marry Cleopatra, secure that charisma for yourself. God knows Perdiccas could use some charisma, by the way. It was a far better long-term bet. Everyone's head was at risk if his authority were challenged and conflict broke out. Perdiccas waffled. If he rejected Antipater's daughter here, he might risk a war with Antipater right now. So, he went with Nicaea over Cleopatra. The wedding took place shortly thereafter. Eumenes thought, big mistake. And he was soon proven right. Another one of Philip's daughters, named Kinane, who was actually a daughter from his Illyrian queen, so she was a direct rival of Olympias and Cleopatra. Well, Kinane snuck into Asia to try to have her daughter Eurydice marry poor Aridaeus, otherwise known as King Philip III, the puppet half-brother of Alexander, of course. And Perdiccas, well, he freaked out a little bit. If this Eurydice became the wife of Aridaeus, she and her mom could become the new puppet masters, challenge the regent's authority, and they could have legitimate heirs, and the situation could really get out of control for Perdiccas. So he had the girl's mom, Kenane, murdered in cold blood. Typical Perdiccas, using brute force in a clumsy, heavy-handed way, and it backfired. 
The soldiers at Perdiccas' command, when they found out about this murder, they were furious. Perdiccas was trying to prevent their beloved Aridaeus from having a little joy in life. It was cruel, him preventing the king from gaining such a pretty young bride. He was just such a nice kid, you know, never hurt anybody. And Aridaeus kind of reminded them of his half-brother, who they missed very sorely. And so they demanded that Perdiccas allow the marriage to go on, to atone for his sins of murdering this sweet young girl's mother. In reality, Eurydice was every bit as ambitious and ferocious as her mother had been. Illyrian noblewomen like her were, by tradition, trained in sword fighting. They were pretty tough. Eurydice was determined to replace Olympias's bloodline with her own. Perdiccas knew this, but he had no choice now but to allow the marriage. He could lose the army if he didn't. Now he realized that if only he had married Cleopatra, he wouldn't have been threatened at all right now. He would be married to the most legitimate royal on the playing field. But instead of cutting his losses, Perdiccas lost his head again. He ordered Eumenes to go in secret to bring up the issue of marriage with Cleopatra again. So Eumenes hit the road to Sardis, where she was in Western Asia, to try to convince Cleopatra to ignore that prior insult from Perdiccas, who had just rejected her. Well, slim chance. And yet, what else could Eumenes do at this point but give it his best shot? Eumenes was to assure Cleopatra that Nicaea would most assuredly be returned to her family in a dignified manner upon Cleopatra's acceptance of this proposal. But Perdiccas also wished Eumenes to notify the esteemed Princess Cleopatra that there was a little bit of haste here because as regent and protector of the royal house, he would be needing her cooperation in a pressing matter. He now wanted to march to Macedonia in a royal procession with Cleopatra at his side as his new wife with the intention of burying Alexander's body in his homeland. It had now been two years since Alexander's death, and over this period, Perdiccas had commissioned a huge, elaborate funeral carriage to carry the body of the king. It was covered in art and precious metals and stones. It was pulled by 64 mules. And on Perdiccas's orders, the men in charge of this kind of thing started slowly rolling the funeral juggernaut west from Babylon along the royal road in a holy procession. Perdiccas was waiting for them. He was going to meet them in Cilicia. Alexander's body had huge symbolic significance. In Macedonian tradition, the man who ritually buried the king was supposed to be the next king. And this was all not very subtle on the part of Perdiccas. He might well have innocently wanted to merely shore up his authority as regent and protector of the kings. But hadn't Alexander actually requested to be buried at the Siwa Oasis in the Egyptian desert, in the precinct of the Oracle of Amun-Ra, the god who had recognized his divinity? It was Olympias who wanted him buried in Macedonia. But on a hostile interpretation, all of this pomp and ceremony that was being planned, it looked like Perdiccas himself was making a grab at permanent kingship. And there were plenty of hostile actors by now willing to spin it that way. Perdiccas's plans might still have worked, except two things happened that threw a wrench in it all. 
First, before Eumenes got to Cleopatra, or at least before he convinced her to take Perdiccas' hand, Antigonus, the one-eyed, got to Antipater. Perdiccas had actually summoned Antigonus to account for his insubordination for ignoring Perdiccas' command to help Eumenes out with Ariarathes back then, and instead of showing up at court to make a defense of his actions, Antigonus crossed over into Macedonia and presented to Antipater a damning case against Perdiccas. In fact, Antigonus had discovered from sources of the highest trustworthiness that Perdiccas was planning to divorce poor Nicaea, Antipater's daughter, and marry Cleopatra. This, combined with Perdiccas's plan to personally accompany and bury Alexander's body in Macedonia instead of in Egypt, as well as his murderous attempt to prevent Aridaeus from having any heirs, this was all incontrovertible proof, he claimed, that Perdiccas was indeed aiming at seizing the throne for himself. Antipater should therefore not be fooled into believing that this march into Macedonia was some innocuous royal ceremony, but rather, it was an act of war. Antipater, hearing all this, well, it just confirmed what he had suspected all along. He mustered his troops and declared war. Cleopatra found out about this all. She informed Eumenes that she was going to wait and see who won this war. He could hardly blame her. Perdiccas's window had closed. And then, around the same time Perdiccas heard of Antipater's plans to march against him, he got word that Ptolemy, the wily satrap of Egypt, the man who had murdered his military lieutenant governor and seized all the power for himself, Ptolemy had marched up into Syria and intercepted Alexander's funeral carriage and forcibly redirected it to Alexandria. Ptolemy had stolen the body of the king away to Egypt, to his new capital city. This was tantamount to a declaration of war coming from Ptolemy now, too, stealing that powerful physical symbol of royal authority. And you know, the timing with Antigonus's charges against Perdiccas in Macedonia was just too good. This had to be coordinated. Eumenes could now see that this had been building for months. Perdiccas marched south to Egypt with his army. It was now an all-out war. The funeral games were on. It was Perdiccas and Eumenes versus Antigonus, Ptolemy, Antipater. And even Eumenes' friend Craterus was on Antipater's side too. The odds didn't look great. Eumenes' job in this conflict was to guard the crossing into Asia from Macedonia, over by the Hellespont, near where he grew up. And as his subordinates, he had Perdiccas' brother, Alcides, and also none other than Neoptolemus, that wall-scaling, hard-fighting, bureaucrat-loathing, Macedonian tough guy, who Eumenes had recently upstaged in Armenia. Antigonus headed south, to help Ptolemy out in Egypt, but it was Craterus and Antipater bearing down fast on Eumenes. They crossed the straits into Asia Minor. Eumenes summons his subordinates, Alcides and Neoptolemus, to join him so that they can assemble their two armies together. Alcides, Perdiccas's brother, refuses to come. He doesn't trust his Macedonian soldiers not to betray him and join Craterus. Neoptolemus comes 
But he was done taking orders from this pencil pusher, and he was done with Perdiccas too. He secretly decides to defect. A few days later, Neoptolemus brings his troops, but when he shows up, he's in full battle formation, spears pointed at Eumenes. He thinks he's going to surprise this little Greek secretary. But Eumenes was preparing exactly for this, and he's got his forces ready to go too. He leads his troops against this traitor and defeats Neoptolemus thoroughly. His superior cavalry was a decisive factor. So Neoptolemus flees to Antipater and Craterus. But Eumenes captures most of the remaining troops and offers them a chance to redeem themselves by joining his own army, which they accept. But now he's alone, commanding an army of recent cavalry recruits and some remnants of Macedonian infantry. These were the ones that Neoptolemus had been commanding against the combined forces of the two most senior and respected and battle-hardened Macedonian generals alive. Suddenly, though, Eumenes is presented with a new possibility to consider. Emissaries come to him from Antipater and Craterus. They haven't yet heard about this recent battle yet, but either way, they're offering that if Eumenes will switch to their side, he can keep his current satrapies, his current territories, and they'll give him more troops and more land on top of that. They tell him, abandon Perdiccas. He's done for. You can keep Craterus as a friend instead of making him an enemy, and you can go from being an enemy of Antipater to being his friend. Eumenes thinks through the implications. To him, it was clear who the real aggressors were. He sends back his response. I have been Antipater's enemy far too long to become a friend now, especially now, seeing the way that he treats his friends as enemies, meaning Perdiccas, of course. But I am happy to reconcile Craterus to Perdiccas and negotiate a good deal for him. When my friends fight, I am going to take the side of the man who is wronged. I would rather throw away my life than my honor. In other words, to this proposal that Eumenes switch sides... He counter-offered. How about Craterus switch sides? Of course he knew they weren't going to go for that. But here, when the odds were greatly stacked against him, Eumenes chose to risk his life rather than his faithfulness. The Greek word he used for honor in his response was pistis, which also means faith, trust, proof. And the odds were indeed against him. When Neoptolemus arrived at the camp of Antipater and Craterus, he explained to them, a lot of the troops Eumenes is now fighting with are not these new recruit Persians or Bactrians or the many mercenaries from all over the place who are now fighting in these armies of the successors. They're old school Macedonians, men who love Craterus. And by the way, remember here that Craterus had been the main candidate for regent that the common soldiers were pushing at Babylon, but he was out of town then. Craterus was that salt of the earth, soldier's soldier, who had often been bold and stood up to Alexander on behalf of the common fighting men. He had even pushed back against Alexander's attempts to favor Persians and Persian customs over Macedonians and Macedonian ways. And Neoptolemus tells the generals, Once you menace his Macedonian troops, hear Craterus' unmistakable voice barking out to them and see him across the field wearing that lucky Macedonian hat of his. They're not going to want to fight. They're going to abandon you menace. They'll probably even come over to Craterus. We might even win without a fight. So the commanders decide, lucky for you many's here, Antipater's going to head south to Egypt 
to join the campaign against Perdiccas himself. So he's out of the picture. Craterus and Neoptolemus, though, head straightway to Eumenes. They think, if we're quick, we'll catch him off guard, unprepared, disorganized, still drinking with his men and celebrating their recent victory. But Eumenes was quite sober. Through his scouts, he found out about Craterus and Neoptolemus's blitzkrieg plan, and he was well aware of his Macedonian troops' weakness for Craterus. And it was hard to blame them, really. He loved Craterus, too. Craterus was by far the most likable of Alexander's companions. He was brave, honest, loyal, putting the greater good in front of personal interest. He was as down-to-earth as any Macedonian warlord could possibly be. But somehow Antipater had gotten to him. And now what? Eumenes was outgunned in foot soldiers. His Macedonian infantry were potentially unreliable. The rest of his troops were relatively new recruits against Craterus's veteran Macedonian phalanx. So Eumenes starts to make plans to retreat. Maybe all of this fantasy about being a Homeric hero, a warrior, leading armies, maybe it was all just that. A fantasy. Maybe he should just concede, go back to being a backwater bureaucrat. He had a family now to think about, a beautiful wife, a little baby now. To whom did he owe the greater duty? But then he has a dream one night, and in it he sees two Alexanders, each at the head of a phalanx, arrayed against each other. They commence battle. And the goddess Athena comes to help one Alexander, and the goddess Demeter helps the other. After a fierce struggle, the Alexander that has Athena on his side is defeated. Demeter's Alexander wins. And then Demeter picks ears of grain and weaves them into a victory crown for her Alexander. Eumenes wakes up. He gets out of his tent, looks around. What was that all about? and it hits him. He was fighting for control of a land that was very fertile, and right at that time, there was a rich crop of grain ripening in the fields. Everywhere around him, the countryside was plowed and sown and now bringing forth abundantly, a sight befitting peacetime. The plains of Phrygia were covered with luxuriant growth. Demeter, the grain goddess, was showing her full strength. The dream was a good omen. He also learned from his spies that the enemy's watchword at their camp, their password, was Athena and Alexander. This was very encouraging too. And so he gave out a new watchword for his own camp, Demeter and Alexander. And he ordered his men to crown themselves and wreath their shields and weapons with ears of grain. And he told them to prepare for battle. And the most daring and clever action he takes he tells all of his forces from the common soldiers up to the senior officers that they are about to fight Neoptolemus again and not Craterus with him, but some obscure foreign magnate named Pigres, some Thracian or something. And he leads his army through circuitous routes and byways on their way to face the enemy so as to keep everyone in the dark. He doesn't want the armies to physically see each other until the last moment. And then... 
He also picks a place to meet the enemy where he could take full advantage of his trusty Armenian and Cappadocian cavalry. And as the armies draw close enough to be aware of each other, Eumenes makes his battle formation. He learned from his scouts that Craterus was going to be on the right wing of his own troops, so he forms up on his own left wing to face Craterus, or supposedly Pigres, two troops of foreign cavalry commanded by a Persian named Pharnabazus. Not a single Macedonian is going to be sent against Craterus's side. And Pharnabazus has orders to charge at full speed as soon as the enemy appears within range and to accept no heralds, no parleys, no delays. Eumenes takes the right wing of his lines. He's planning to go straight for Neoptolemus, together with an elite cavalry division. And when Craterus saw the forces of Eumenes emerging over the hill between them at a dead gallop, he was shocked. So much for a victory with no battle. He heaped curses on Neoptolemus for all that nonsense about the Macedonians switching sides. Then he exhorted his officers to be brave and fight like men. And then he charged. And in that battle, Craterus fought bravely. He slew many of the enemy. He would have made Alexander proud. But he took a spear to the side and he fell from his horse. His enemies rode past him, not knowing who he was. But then one of Eumenes' officers recognizes him, dismounts, and stands guard over his body. It looks like he's struggling for his life. On the other wing, though, Eumenes charges Neoptolemus, and now on the plains of Phrygia, Eumenes engages Neoptolemus in hand-to-hand combat. And Plutarch is drawing on a source here who is there at the battle. This is a historian named Hieronymus, and here's what Plutarch says. Eumenes and Neoptolemus had long hated one another with a deadly hatred, but in the battle, in two onsets, neither had caught sight of the other. In the third, however, they recognized each other, and at once drew their swords and with loud cries rode to the attack. Their horses dashed together with the violence of colliding trireme battleships, and dropping the reins, they clutched one another with their hands, each trying to tear the other's helmet off and strip the breastplate from his shoulders. While they were struggling, their horses ran from under them, and they fell to the ground where they closed with one another and wrestled for mastery. Then, while Neoptolemus was trying to get up, Eumenes cut him in the hamstring, and himself got to his feet before his adversary did. But Neoptolemus, supporting himself on one knee and wounded in the other, defended himself vigorously from underneath. He could not, however, inflict fatal wounds, but was himself wounded in the neck fell to the ground and lay there prostrate. As he's lying motionless there, still holding his sword, Eumenes comes up to strip his armor off, and Neoptolemus surprises him with a blow to the groin below the breastplate. But it startles Eumenes more than it hurts him, and there was no strength behind it. And then Eumenes finishes the job. And now he's covered with blood, much of it his own, But he has his men throw him back on his horse, and he rides up to go help the other wing. And he hears the cheers and the news that they've won, but he also learns the fate of Craterus. He rides up and finds Craterus still conscious. He dismounts, takes Craterus by the hand, and weeps. 
What an evil fortune brought them to this point, where friends and comrades were forced to either suffer or inflict such horrors on each other. Eumenes has Craterus carried off the field, as his doctors try to save him, but it was too late. So, he gives him a proper Macedonian funeral with great ceremony and has his ashes sent back to his wife and children in the land of his fathers. And that was how Eumenes, by gradually taking on larger and larger challenges and responsibilities, transformed from a man of letters and a numbers guy into a man of war, a man of Homeric dimensions. He had become an equal of the great lords who were now deciding the fate of the throne of Alexander. Word traveled swiftly toward Egypt, where Perdiccas had arrived and was beginning his operations against Ptolemy. But just two days before the news of Eumenes's stunning upset victory reached Perdiccas's camp, Perdiccas, the regent, was himself assassinated by a conspiracy of his own officers in Egypt. They had been in talks with Ptolemy, and they brought Perdiccas's whole army over to Ptolemy's side. When the soldiers heard about Craterus's death, they were enraged, and they charged Eumenes with treason in absentia. These men were soon joined by Antipater and Antigonus the One-Eyed. In the aftermath of the assassination and the de facto victory in Egypt, the Entente that had formed against Perdiccas made a new partition, a new arrangement for governance, named after the place that they met in northern Syria. This was called the Partition of Triparadesos. Antipater was chosen as the new sole regent, not just of Macedonia now, but of the whole kingdom. He became the new protector of the kings. And the great lords then divided up the satrapies of the kingdom again. The assumption, on the face of it at least, was still that they would preserve the kingdom intact. Ptolemy kept Egypt. Seleucus, who was one of the assassin officers who betrayed Perdiccas, he got Babylon, went on to found a great dynasty there, the Seleucid Empire. And of course they found somebody to replace that old satrap of Cappadocia, that Greek, who was now a dead man walking. Antipater, now around 80 years old, is eager to get back to his ancestral lands before his time runs out, and he wants to send a signal that, in his opinion, the capital of a kingdom run by Macedonians should be in Macedonia. So he takes King Philip Aridaeus and Roxana and the baby King Alexander IV back with him to Macedonia in northern Greece. And he appoints, as supreme general of the royal army, Antigonus the One-Eyed and he puts Antigonus in charge of finishing what's left of this war. And Antigonus's first task was eliminating the resistance in Asia Minor. Word soon gets to Eumenes' camp about the fate of Perdiccas, about the sentence of the other Macedonians against him, about the coming contest against his new adversary, Antigonus. He summons his troops together, calls an assembly, and addresses them. And in this assembly, I imagine, he has to point out that Antipater, as a sworn enemy of Alexander's mother, Olympias, regardless of what he says, he surely does not have the long-term interest of Alexander's royal line in mind. Aridaeus and Alexander's infant son should be considered hostages of their enemies. 
And he also has to point out to them that the man that they were now facing on the battlefield soon, Antigonus, was a traitor, the man most responsible for instigating this terrible war, this lawless, faithless power grab, which so dishonored the memory of their late king and his father. But Plutarch tells that Eumenes nonetheless made his troops an offer. If anyone is distressed by the news, he says, you are free to leave right now. I do not plan to surrender. The troops roar in approval. They shout back at him and start chanting, We'll cancel their decrees with our swords. And this is what he was after. He needed to be able to count on the loyalty of every single man with him for the coming contest. Considering the course that history took, people, including Plutarch and other ancient writers, people have ever since wondered, how different would the world have been if news of Eumenes' upset victory had gotten to Perdiccas' camp at Memphis in Egypt just a little sooner, perhaps a mere 48 hours? Could the messengers have sailed a little faster, rode a little harder? Maybe. Well, if they had gotten there in time, Perdiccas suddenly would have looked like a winner to his officers, the man with momentum on his side. They probably wouldn't have betrayed him. He had many advantages, including the nearly bottomless royal treasury. And most importantly, Perdiccas had fighting on his side a legendary, undefeated elite phalanx, the greatest infantry division in Greek history, the Silver Shields. This war would likely have gone a very different direction. But the story we are telling here, and which we will finish next week, is instead the story of how Eumenes faced the cold light of reality, and how he kept the embers of hope alive for the royal house he'd sworn to protect, and for the unity that house represented. This is Alex Petkus. Until next week.